0: You'll please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, as we're taking a little bit of a break from the book of Ephesians as we come into this holy week, and a couple of things as you're turning in the passage to Luke chapter 19, um, a couple of things to bring to your attention. Again, if you are a visitor or You're a regular attender and you did not bring food. We did send out a message asking for people to bring extra. So I know that we have an extra ring of subs uh, from public. So uh, you're invited to stay and have a a time of fellowship and um, just gather around on the lawn and and have just a good time of getting to know one another. So again, don't worry about having to go grab something. Uh, Just stay, feel free and get to know one another. And then secondly, uh, another praise that we have is that Uh, Chris and the Sanders family. Uh, Chris has been hired uh, up in South Carolina at his home church. And so we want to continue to pray with him and for them as they make the transition. And he will be starting sometime this summer. But we uh, take the time to congratulate him and praise God for the answer uh, to the prayers and uh, for the process that Chris and the Sanders family has gone through. We're looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48 this morning. And so Dr. Luke is writing this book to Theopolis. And so if you look back at the beginning in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says to Theopolis, making sure that you have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then what he does, he tells us at the core of this book, the purpose given to us why Jesus came. And it's chapter 19, verse 10, and it says that Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. And so we come knowing that he is the son of God, and so on the first Palm Sunday, he allows himself to finally be recognized for who he truly is, the king. But not just any king, but he is the perfect suffering king who came to save his people. So I want you to hear the word of the Lord, because uh, Luke gives us three separate um, scenes on this time period. So we begin at verse 28 through verse 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entry you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And as he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the things that we need, you can provide the things we need to be taught. You need to teach us. The power we need, you need to provide through your Holy Spirit. So Father, give us eyes to see and hearts to understand just exactly what happened on the first Palm Sunday, but Lord, how we should apply it to ourselves even now. So you teach us and you change us. For this we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we'll see that the first scene, and we're talking about the king through this process of the book of Luke as we go through today, Good Friday, and then also Easter. And so we're going to look at how Jesus performs this office of king. And so the first thing we see is that he was the promised king. And as Dave read for us earlier from the prophecy of Zechariah nine nine through thirteen, we already knew that there was going to become one a Messiah who would come running, riding specifically in a very specific way. And so we knew that there was a promised Messiah. It was a long-awaited Messiah. It was long awaited because this was, think about this. this is one of the most crucial days in all of the entire world and all of history, what Jesus is about to do. Yet, for most people, they are unaware. They don't care. Very much like our world today. How many people did you drive by that were out in their yards, or haven't even woken up yet, or how packed will the beaches be today, especially with the good weather? Yet they have no clue, they're unaware of the things that Christ has done for them. And so we have this long-awaited Messiah, but we also have this encounter with this animal, this donkey. Now, why is this brought into this passage? Why is this such a big deal And if you think about it, the disciples and those that were with Jesus, they didn't have a problem with his presence, did they? They got to see Jesus. The thing they struggled with most was, do they trust in his power? Was Jesus truly the Son of God? Was he able to provide a donkey, just as he said, was there really going to be a donkey in that village for them to go? And they're going to go and, and meet these people. And, and and we don't know if it was a, a magical thing that happened in the sense that, that God allowed the, the owner to not have any kind of inclination. But it also could have been a, kind of a code word. Hey, the Father needs this. And so the owner gave it. We don't know what happened, but there was did happen so that the disciples understood that Jesus was who he said he was. And so there was the reality that only, uh, that this is a thing that Jesus is sending, that he's teaching us, and he's reminding all of us that his presence is with us, his power is with us. Now, we also understand that this is probably the only recorded time that we have in the Bible where Jesus actually rides. And the thing is, is he doesn't just ride on any animal. He rides on, listen, an unbroken animal. Now that speaks to Jesus being Lord over all creation. If you go and talk to people about how do you um, go and you ride an animal, you don't just jump on an unbroken animal. It's not a normal thing. It's not something that they're aware of. And yet Jesus was able to ride an unbro- unbroken animal into the city, with great crowds around, with loud noises, and it does, and it comes, but he also is the symbol of him coming lowly and humble, riding not on the stallion, not on the war horse, but riding upon the humble, gentle donkey. And so we have this scene where, again, it was prophesied that Jesus, the Son of God, would be coming. So we have this kind of scenario where Jesus is now on the donkey, and he begins to ride, and people start to put down cloaks and palm, uh, palm leaves before him, and they begin to praise. Well, who are those people? Who is the crowd that comes? Well, there's four very distinctive different groups of people that are there. One is those that are coming for Passover, these are people that are pilgrims on their way to celebrate a very historical time in Jerusalem. And so it would said that it would swell by the hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem during this time. And there would have been hundreds of thousands of uh, lambs that were being brought to be slaughtered. So you have this great throng that's there in uh, Jerusalem, there for historical purposes. But you also had the inquisitive, Now, what do I mean by that? Remember the scene that has just happened before this is Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a big deal. Even in our day, CNN would go if someone was raised from the dead. This would be a big deal. This doesn't happen. And so when Jesus goes to the tomb after Lazarus has been in the tomb and tells him to come forth and he comes walking out in his grave clothes, You better believe that people are starting to talk. Who is this that the dead even listen to his words? And so you have the inquisitive that are out there and they're following Jesus to see what else he can do. Then there's also his disciples the ones that have been following him for, for years now and they, they come with their, their master to come to the city even after he's already told them, hey, I'm going to the city and I'm going to die. But his disciples are there with him as he comes into the city. And then there's the fourth group, the Pharisees, the religious people. And we know that they're there because the scripture tells us and they're not just there in the crowd, but they're there because they give a rebuke in the midst of praise. See, they're the ones who look at Jesus after the people erupt into praise, and it's a praise again for his mighty works. And they said, hey, teacher, rabbi, tell your disciples to be silent because what they're saying, which we cannot control, is that you are the Messiah, And remember, Jesus throughout his lifetime, every time that somebody would come and they would say, You are the Son of God, Jesus would tell them, Shh, don't tell anybody. So, why now does Jesus accept the title? See, Jesus is showing to us very clearly, and he answers the Pharisees with this statement. If these people were to be silent, even the stones would would cry out and give me praise. Because he is who he says he is. He is the son of God. Come on our behalf to give his life as a ransom. And so as he hushes them, it's in the midst of overwhelming praise that's going on. They're expressing joy and praise. Why? Because they're giving joy because of what he's done. Now, again, that, that's, sometimes that's a, that's a little put-offish, maybe. They're not necessarily celebrating Jesus for who he is, but what he's done. But Jesus still receives their praise and their worship as he goes forth. Why? Because he knows he's coming as the suffering king. See, we should know even in this moment, Dr. Luke is telling us Jesus cares. He cares as the king because he comes at this moment as this humble king who comes as the perfect sacrifice as he's being led into the city to die for our sins. So Dr. Luke gives us the first scene, but then he turns our attention to the second scene, and the second scene is where Jesus is weeping. Now, he does this because he sees the city. Now, again, for those who've either been there, have you visited over into the Holy Lands, or if you've seen pictures, you would know that the Mount of Olives is above the city of Jerusalem, and there's a steep valley, the Kidron Valley, and it actually meets another valley, okay? And that's where you get the valley of the shadow of death, it's this is the place where David watches his own family turn on him. It's the exact place. And so when Jesus comes and he's sitting atop of the Mount of Olives and he's riding down into Jerusalem, he has that view much like we do when we're in planes and we become and we see the cities laid in front of us. And when he sees the the city laid in front of him, he begins to sob. It's, it's not just crying, he sobs over the city. And he's sobbing because, listen, this is even in the midst of the praise. So the disciples are crying out. Remember, get the whole scene. The disciples are crying out. The crowds are, are saying, Hosanna, save us. Hey, we want you to be the Messiah. The, you have the religious people telling tell them to shut up. Tell him to be quiet. All this is going on. And Jesus looks at the city and he begins to weep. And so much so that Dr. Luke wants us to get the picture. Why is Jesus weeping? He wants them to understand in the midst of his sobs that his love is the thing that fills them even in the midst of the judgment that's about to come upon them. And he tells us very clearly that it's a, a peace that they're looking for. And they're looking for a physical peace. Remember, they, they don't have a mindset of a spiritual savior. They want a physical savior. They want Rome to be gone. They don't want to be oppressed anymore. They don't want to give their money to Caesar. And if Jesus can bring people back from the dead, if Jesus can feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish, hey, that's somebody I'm going to follow, Right? If I could go into battle and be stabbed multiple times, for those who know the the marble kind of stuff, like the Wolverine, you get slashed, you get stabbed, you get shot, and you keep coming back, your your body fixes yourself, how bold do you become? Shoot me again. Come on, chop my head off. It's gonna grow back. I mean, if that's our savior, are we gonna win the war? Well, of course we are. So come, Jesus, come and be our physical Savior. And Jesus says, I'm not coming that way. And you're so blind, it is so far from your understanding and so far from your words that you just desire to have your life comfortable. Now, before we throw rocks at them, I bet most of the people, if not all of them, the people in this room want a comfortable life. We seek it out, don't we? And a lot of times we try to do it through other means. We try to make sure that our family loves us and we're spending time with our family and we're doing things with our family. Sometimes we try to do it through our job or our career. I have made it. I have reached the pinnacle. I am somebody. Sometimes we try to do it through our friends. Sometimes we try to do it through activism. Does it surprise us that people go out and they, they balk at everything that's going on? If you are told that you are worth nothing, that this world means nothing, then what do you have to live for? Be anarchist, right? Do something, shake up the system. So we try to find this satisfaction in everything but where it needs to be. One of the things that, again, was very telling to me as I was doing the study was just the realization, again, that sin is a condition before sin is an action. We are in sin all the time. Our actions are simply the outworkings of what's really going on in our heads and our hearts. See, it's why people can come to churches and say, nobody cares Nobody knows, nobody understands. The vacation I went on, was it was a good vacation with family. It was also a hard vacation because I got to see Lynn who's dealing with Parkinson's. And he just had a new grandbaby uh, be born. And his first response is, I will not be around to see this child grow up. I talked to Danny, the guy that my friend that I told you about, whose son died right before Christmas. He's still going to the cemetery But both of these guys who were on staff at churches, good churches, Lynn on a staff of over 15 pastors, a church of over 2,000 people. You know, how many people have been asking him how his Parkinson's is going? Zero. Danny, whose son died, one of the elders, an elder, has yet to say one thing, good or bad, To him since his son has died. See, we look for physical peace. We look for it from all different places. And God comes to us in Christ and he says, Where man fails, I don't. And we get it, right? Sometimes we don't know what to say to one another. Sometimes we don't know how to minister. You know an easy way? Just tell someone. Tell someone you love them. Tell someone you're praying. Tell someone you care. Ask questions. One of the very specific questions I asked my friend Eddie, and I'm surprised that he hadn't been asked this before. I said, what do you need? And he said, No one's asked me that. Three months. But he came back and said, you know, I don't even know what I need. So we're called to be the church, and yes, we look for physical peace, but what God comes is he brings specifically spiritual peace. Because that's the greatest need. Again, I'm reminded, and we see so many stories throughout the scripture where people are coming for physical healing from Jesus. And the thing that he does, he says, "You know what? the greatest thing that I give to you is forgiveness, but that you might know that I am the Son of God. I'm also going to physically heal you." So we have this understanding that God comes, and one of the things is we have a friend moving from Colorado. she's just turned 90. Um, and she's going to be in the lamplighter community. So we're having to fix up some things and get ready. And it just so happened that her neighbor is, uh, is a Christian couple. And so we've been talking to them. And they said, you know what? You're going to meet a, a really neat lady. And she's 104 years old. And she has her caregiver drive her around in the golf cart. And she prays for every home in that community. You want a ministry? Drive around your community and pray by name for those people to know Jesus. And he said they were um, snowbirds for over five years, and she knew exactly when they came back, exactly where they lived, and knew their name because she was praying for them by name. I'm telling you, she has a bigger ministry and impact for the gospel than I have ever dreamed or imagined doing. You know what the people around you need? They need a spiritual peace. So pray for them, pray with them. Would we say like Jesus, oh, Melbourne, oh, Melbourne, oh, Cocoa Beach, oh, Galley, Merritt Island, Palm Bay, Brevard County, Central Florida. If you only knew what you needed. Let me tell you, because his name is Jesus. So we have this second scene that's set up where Jesus comes in and he weeps over the city. And then he gives us the third scene. And it's a theme where Jesus comes as the purifying king and he comes to the temple. Now this makes sense for Dr. Luke because Dr. Luke starts with the scenes and the story that he tells with Simeon, right? And where does Simeon meet Jesus? He meets him in the temple. It's also Luke who tells us about Jesus being in the temple when he's a youth. You remember what Jesus says? I need to be where? In my father's house. I need to be my father's house and I need to be about my father's things because this was a place that was supposed to be a place of purity, a place of hope. Uh, Chris Bryans and I went to lunch this past week and he he gave me a great quote and I think I have this right and he can tell me if I didn't. But one of the quotes he said was, uh, in the church we're supposed to, God brings comfort to the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. It's where we're supposed to be, Right? For those of us who come in here who are badly in need of comforting, badly in need of peace, this is the place to find it. But if you think that you've got it all together and you've figured it out, God comes and allows the Holy Spirit to say, You haven't, you're not there yet. And I'm gonna take you through another hard time, but make no difference. Make no mistake, I am with you in the midst. And so we had this opportunity to come into the house, but the house, he tells us, was supposed to be a house of prayer. Why? Because it's the place where we meet God. And it happened very specifically at a very specific place there. It doesn't happen the same way for us nowadays. But for then, it did. And it was a very specific place, but it was a place that became desecrated Remember the, the original intent for God to meet his people there, for the people to be able to come. And again, the, 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 the curtains should have been opened. The people should have been allowed to come in and to find Jesus to know God and to understand and grow in his love for them. That's what the temple was supposed to be. But it had become something different. The reality of the temple had now become these same. Listen, the same Pharisees that told Jesus' disciples to shut up are the same people who are overseeing the evil where Jesus says, You've made my God's house into a den of robbers. So they made it a business, they're making money. Hey, you know what you really need? You need need to make sure you have a religiously approved sheep. Don't take the work. Don't get to know your own sheep. Don't raise your sheep up. Don't don't bring this pricely sheep that you've raised and know the name of it and your kids don't want you to kill it. Come and get this no-name sheep that we've approved. We put a rubber stamp on it. And it'll only cost you this amount of money. But, you know, we have financing available. We have all these things. You can be assured that God's going to accept your sacrifice today. I say it tongue-in-cheek, but this is what the temple had become. We might even laugh at that and go, well, that would never happen. Listen, there was a story, true story, of one church One way that they were trying to get people out for the evening service, and I'm not lying about this, they set up a wrestling match between the staff members. That's how much they wanted to get people out, but in the midst of trying to get people out for worship, they destroyed it, right? They made it a spectacle. That's what had become of the temple. It had just become a spectacle, just a place. Of business, a place, a distraction from what really was supposed to go on. See, God calls us to come and not to be distracted by the world, not to give in to the world's ways, but to be our, here focused upon what we're supposed to be. And I've told you this, and I will continue to tell us. we come here to an audience of one. It's only God that we come with our hearts and we lay before him our praise and worship. And so I don't care if you clap. I don't care if you raise your hands. I don't care if you keep your hands in your pocket. Where's your heart? Are you coming to your Savior? And forget about all the distractions. Again, one one of the things that I, I appreciate about mine and Chris's lunch was I said, you know, I can go anywhere. I can go to a Catholic church. I can go to a Coptic church. I can go anywhere and I can find worship of the living God. Is it the exact same way I'm doing it? Is it the way I feel comfortable? Not always. But when we seek to find worship in the midst of the words of God, we find it and he is glorified. And so we have this opportunity where Jesus comes in and so he's the king in the midst of the prophecy that, that came as a suffering servant. He's the king that weeps over you because he so loves you. And then he's the prophet that purifies us because listen, it ultimately becomes what? Only about Jesus. That's what this place should be. If they ask you, what, what is it? What's the thing that drives you? What is the thing in worship? What's the thing when we come to the Lord's Supper? What is at the very core of it? It's only Jesus. Because that's ultimately what happens, right? In the new heavens, the new earth, there's no temple. It's only Jesus. And so wherever Jesus is, the temple's there. And so that's what he prepares for us this morning as we come to the Lord's table. And remember, what were the religious people trying to do? Kill him. But it says that the people were hanging on his every word. So my question to you is, is Jesus your king? Do you understand and take Jesus as your personal Savior, as the King that came, as the suffering King, the perfect sacrifice for you? Do you understand the love that he has for you is so immense and he loves you so much and he wants you to have the eyes to see that again you could feel at peace in this world all you want? But if you do not know Christ, you don't have eternal peace. And he comes to purify us. He gives his life to restore to us the thing that we lost in Eden, the relationship with the living God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, a a very similar passage, one that we hear every year around Easter time. But Father, may this year be different. Lord, as we do go through, for many of us, this, the devotionals this week as we focus upon your life during what we call Holy Week. But Lord, they're just normal days. They're just days where we either choose to run toward you or choose to run from you. Father, I would pray that we would run to you Lord, that we would take what it is that you're doing and especially as we have the opportunity this morning that we would taste, taste and see the gospel and see that it's good and that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to love us with an everlasting love. So Father, touch us and change us by that love this morning. For we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. As we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper, I would ask that you would stand and that we would...